This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I am so glad you are listening and would really appreciate your rating this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps me out a lot. If you have personalized book questions, I can be reached at cindyhburnett at att.net, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I am interviewing Bryn Turnbull. Her book, The Woman Before Wallace, is one of my Buzz Reads top picks for September, and I had so much fun interviewing her, as you will see in a few moments. Equipped with a Master's of Letters in Creative Writing from the University of St. Andrews, a Master's of Professional Communication from Ryerson University, and a Bachelor's Degree in English Literature from McGill University, Bryn focuses on finding stories of women lost within the cracks of the historical record. She lives in Toronto, and The Woman Before Wallace is her first novel. Welcome, Bryn. I'm so glad you're here to talk about The Woman Before Wallace. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be on. Of course. I absolutely loved your book, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it? Thank you. Uh, Yeah, so my book is called The Woman Before Wallace, and it is set in the 1930s, and it deals with Thelma Morgan Furness, who was a real person who had an affair with the Prince of Wales in the 1930s prior to him meeting Wallace Simpson and abdicating his throne. So the reason that Edward and Wallace actually got together in the first place is because Wallace was one of Thelma's good friends. And Thelma had to leave him for a period of about six weeks in 1934. So she took her friend Wallace Simpson out for lunch at the Ritz Hotel and said to her, Edward's going to be very lonely while I'm gone. Will you look after him for me? And Wallace reached across the table, patted her on the back of her hand and said, of course I will, darling. <laughs> and uh, when Wallace retu- or when Thelma returned those six weeks later, it turned out that Wallace had done a bit too good of a job looking after Edward. So most of the book is about Thelma and her relationship with Edward and with Wallace Simpson leading up to this conversation. It's also about what she was doing in those six weeks that she was away. So Thelma had a twin sister named Gloria Vanderbilt whose daughter, Little Gloria, was the subject of the biggest custody battle in American history that centered on a $2.5 million trust fund. And it was a very, it was sort of one of the first celebrity trials where, you know, reporters were rappelling down the side of the courthouse to take pictures of everyone inside. And there was a real frenzy. So Thelma went to support her sister in this custody battle. And that's the other, that's the other pillar of the book. So it's about this woman who's caught between these two sort of pivotal moments in the 1930s. Well, I grew up in the 80s wearing Gloria Vanderbilt jeans. So (laughs) I am very familiar with Gloria Vanderbilt, but I didn't know any of that until I was reading your book. I don't know how I had missed that entire story. So it's fascinating to me. And then you talk at the end about how um, after the custody battle, um, they had to have security for her because there have been all these threats for kidnapping. I mean, all of that was brand new to me and completely fascinating. Yeah, the last uh, the last person to really write about the uh, Vanderbilt custody trial was actually Gloria Vanderbilt herself. Uh, she and Anderson Cooper put out a book a couple of years ago, and she talked about the impact that that trial had had on her. But before that, it really hadn't been spoken about since probably the 1970s. There was a book that came out in the 70s, which was a real resource for me in, in writing this book. But it had kind of slipped under the waves of history, as it were. Well, and I remember when that book came out, but I I never read it, obviously, or I would have known about it. It was just interesting because she had a long and storied career, did many things. And it was just interesting that it started out so rocky for her. Oh, for sure. For sure. How did you come across Thelma's story? 
So I actually came across her story. I have Madonna to thank for finding for finding this story. She directed a movie in 2011 called W.E., which chronicles the, the rise of Wallace's relationship with Edward. And she references in the movie this moment where Thelma asks Wallace to take care of the prince while she's gone. And I remember seeing this scene on screen and thinking, what a strange request to make of a friend even someone that you trust. So where was that coming from? Was it a genuine, I want you to take care of this person for me? Or was it, I'm sick of him and I'm implicitly giving you permission to go after him? So that really was the question in my mind that kicked off the book. And yeah, it all kind of snowballed from there. What do you think the answer to that was? Because I know in your author notes, you talk about that her relationship with Edward had cooled. So and it's so confusing to me too, like Edward, Prince of Wales, but she calls him David. I have yeah. some questions about all of that. I'm familiar with the royalty and the way they do that. But it's so interesting to me that there's just all these different names and how they're referenced. But first, do you think <laughs> that, that Thelma was trying to get Wallace to take him off her hands? Or do you think she really thought Wallace was going to help out? You know what? When I started research, I thought that it was going to be a situation of a woman trying to get rid of an unwanted boyfriend. And that was the lens through which I started research. But as I got to know Thelma and I got to know her story, one of the kind of major breakthroughs that I found when I was researching her was that when she died, she dropped out of a heart attack on a street in in New York. And when they found her in her handbag was a keepsake from Edward, a little teddy bear that they used to exchange back and forth. And finding that out that for 50 years, she kept this keepsake of Edward's in in her possession and not only in her possession, but on her person. That to me was an indication that, oh no, she actually, she, she loved him. And this was a, this was a genuine request from someone that she thought that she could trust. Well, and it seemed like throughout the book, once their relationship develops, that she does worry about him. Like when he goes to South America and she knows there's going to be other stuff happening. And then people are saying to her, he'll never marry you. You're divorced. You're American or sort of American. I guess she grew up in Europe, but I mean, of an, I guess, an originally American family and that she was not going to be somebody suitable for him to marry so that she could be queen. Yeah. I don't think that she ever kind of fooled herself into thinking that she that she would be, you know, at the beginning of the book, uh, she's kind of musing on that. What would her position be if she were to marry him? But I think that she, she kind of knew that it was never really going to happen, but I don't think that she expected, she certainly didn't expect Wallace to swoop in and, and kind of change the course of the monarchy as it were. Well, and that raises another question about uh, Edward. Everything you read about him makes him sound like he really didn't want to be King, that he was not happy with the, everything it put on him, the pressure, his family pressure that he did not want to be keen. Do you think that he was looking for a way to get out of it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that if Wallace hadn't given him an excuse, he would have found it elsewhere. I think Thelma had a real appreciation for the monarchy um, throughout their relationship, and she had a deference to that. Um, and I think a, a lot of that came through her marriage to uh, Marmaduke Furness, who was a member of the British aristocracy. But unlike Thelma, Wallace didn't have that deference. Wallace was very much born and bred American. And she came in and said, well, why can't we, like, why, why can't you do what you want to do? You're a king. And so I think that Edward kind of was given implicit permission to give in to those impulses by Wallace Simpson. But I mean, thank, 
honestly, thank God yeah, exactly. we did. <laughs> right. Because we ended yes, up with right. the right king yes. on the throne during the war. Yeah. And we've ended up with uh, the queen that we have today as a result. Yes, he was definitely not suitable. I mean, he wasn't going to do the job that he could have. And then with the relationship they had with the Nazis, I mean, there's so many things there. I agree with you completely. It's just interesting to see how it unfolded. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that kind of leads to my next question, because there are a lot of people in this book and a lot of famous people, interesting people, a lot of stories. I just was constantly looking things up. I was like, I didn't know that, or this is fascinating. How did you narrow it down to get it all into this book? That was a big project, really, because Thelma and Gloria were socialites on both sides of the Atlantic, and they had this life that was filled with famous people. When I first wrote this book, I wrote it about, I started it when they were 16 years old. And at the age of 16, they were living in New York. They were friends with the Hursts. Uh, I had a whole scene set where they went to a costume party held by Millicent Hurst. And there were all of these details that were so interesting and so many people that I wanted to bring in. But ultimately, what it came down to was I realized that the two pivotal parts of her life was her involvement in these two historical moments. And so for me, I had to be judicious and cut it down and say, okay, this is, this is what I can write about. This is the slice of her life. That was most interesting to me. I mean, I could have written three other books about Thelma, but. Uh, so now I'm you hard. have more stuff for next time, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, I'm ready to go. I've got several more books, but I really did wonder that because there is so much material there to try to get it all into one book would be hard. Oh yeah. It's a who's who for sure. What surprised you most about writing the book? The biggest surprise for me was really like all of the sort of idiosyncrasies of the upper class that I wasn't expecting. And that just seems so restrictive and so kind of trifling. The whole idea that children were meant to be seen and not heard and you trot your kids out at tea time and that was really it. The idea of going to a party and having to know how to address the Prince of Wales correctly and how to how to stroke all of these egos in a room, I think was really something that, that surprised me. I think it would have been a very stifling thing for someone in our, in our generation to deal with. The thing that, one of the things that really surprised me that I was aware of, but not as much until I was reading your book is how open the idea that like Duke has this affair and, or many affairs and that that's okay. And that she's supposed to just grin and bear it and that they don't divorce. And then also the fact that the Prince of Wales would just show up at their home. I mean, a couple of times. I mean, I was like, okay, how awkward was that? Um, so I just thought that was kind of, I guess, because of who he was, he felt he could do whatever he wanted, but that would just be awkward when he comes and brings Christmas presents and things like that. Oh, yeah. But I mean, it, it very much was a product of the time, the British aristocracy at the time, these house parties that they'd have, bedroom hopping was just like a norm right. of what would happen because divorce was not really a thing for them. So they found ways to have different relations, shall we say, <laughs> in, in the confines of a marriage now. <laughs> they certainly seem to. And I thought it was interesting. It's almost a double standard for her because he has all of these affairs. She's unhappy about it. She keeps saying, I want to get divorced. Her friend, Lady Sarah, saying, you really can't do that. And then she starts up this relationship with Edward and he, Duke is really unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think as a woman in the 1930s, you didn't have many options, right? You, you kind of, it was, I am going to stay in this marriage, knowing that the benefits of it, vis-a-vis um, -vis comfort, security, children are, are better than the alternative. But that was, that was a deal that 
Thelma, I think, really struggled with because she was American and because she was someone who wasn't born into that system. That was a lot more difficult for her to handle. And so when she turned the tables, I think that was something that Duke really wasn't expecting. And for her to turn the table so spectacularly. Well, I mean, that's well. true. Yeah, it was much more public than a lot of these other things were going to be. And it was also interesting to me that they kept it out of the news in Great Britain, but they were worried that the American press would not keep it out of the news. And I just thought some of those things you just don't think about today because everything is open game. But I just thought that was an interesting uh, difference too. Well, and that was a big problem for Edward and Wallace when ultimately they went public with their relationship the British press had really been deferential towards the Prince of Wales. People knew about his relationship with Wallace Simpson, but they kept it out of the papers for Edward's sake. But when the news really hit the other side of the Atlantic and when it was known that Edward was going to marry Wallace Simpson or try and marry Wallace Simpson, that really, that scandal couldn't be held back anymore. And it really hit with the force of the tidal wave. Well, yes, and no, and I, I agree. I remember when reading about all of that and how it happened, but it's just interesting to see the difference in how one country was handling it versus the other. And again, it's the same thing we've been talking about. The deference to the, the royalty in Great Britain is very different than the American view of it. For sure, for sure. So can you explain to me this Edward, Prince of Wales, but he goes by David, and Bertie becomes King George, even though his brother was named George. I was having to like, I was like, wait a minute, George? I was like, because I, I, I knew he became King George. I, I knew his name was Bertie, but I forgot, but then I got all distracted with the brother George. How does all that happen? It's a, it's a very confusing system. Like e- Edward's full name was, let me see if I can get this right, Edward, Andrew, Christian, George, Andrew, Patrick, David. So, I put two Andrews in there. I know there weren't two Andrews. (laughs) But it had just this unbelievably long moniker. And I think part of the reason that they had these pet names for each other was a way of kind of having some intimacy with each other. It was, everybody knows me as Edward, but you get to know me as David because that's how I feel about myself. That's who I believe myself to be. In, In George's case, Bertie's case, that was a very common practice to take on a new name when you ascended to the throne. For Edward not to do that, for Edward to, to maintain Edward as his name, was actually quite uncommon. And, and Queen Elizabeth has done the same thing. Um, but it was for George, George VI, he took that name as a continuation of his father's reign, who was George V. Right. And I think that was a very deliberate signal for him to make that he was not his brother. He was not going to rule like his brother, there was going to be continuity in the Windsor line. So I think that was very deliberate on his part. And do you think that his brother, who was actually named George, was unhappy with that? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I was like, it's getting confusing. We have much choice in the matter, that's for sure. That's true. I, I don't really know much about the other brothers, too. I really had to look that up. I only really knew about Edward and then George. Yeah, George, Duke of Kent, his story was quite sad. He died in, he died during the Second World War. He was a pilot. Okay. And he, I believe he flew into a mountain in Scotland. Don't quote me on that one, but yeah, he died quite young. Okay. Well, that might be why I don't know as much about him. Mm -hmm. What do you hope your readers take away from this book? So this story is, it's a royal romance, but it's not the love story of a girl who falls in love with a prince. This is a book about the unbreakable bond between sisters. For me, the love of Thelma's life was Gloria, and the love of Gloria's life was Thelma. And this bond that they shared was so incredible and, and so pure and lovely. And, and so for me, the love story at the heart of it is this love between sisters. 
I love that. And I did love their relationship and their relationship with their, their sister, Consuela. It didn't yeah. seem like their brother had quite a strong relationship with them, health issues or whatever else, but their mother, I mean, what do you think made their mother turn against Gloria? Laura Morgan, um, their mother, was one of the hardest characters to write. I think that when you read Thelma and Gloria's autobiography, they make it quite clear that they think that she had some form of a mental illness, um, which I think kind of bled into how she handled herself during the custody trial. But the other side of it was um, she was a woman who really, she didn't have many options in life. She married... She wasn't happy in her marriage. She couldn't leave it. And when she did, she kind of found herself very disadvantaged. And I think that for all of her, for all of, you know, how hard she was on her daughters, I think that she was trying to marry them into a world where they wouldn't have to worry about money. And to see Gloria Sr. supposedly squandering her daughter's inheritance, which is how Laura Morgan saw it, I think that was very difficult for her. Um, I just think that would be so terrible to have your mother very publicly taking the other side of a custody battle. And then, you know, I forgot, you keep forgetting how young Gloria was. Like when she was married to Reggie, that she wasn't even 19, I guess, right? When he died or 19 or 20. So it's just hard to be that young and trying to deal with all of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's a very heartbreaking thing to see a family, um, fall apart like that and fall apart that publicly. Definitely. Um, did you have a character you enjoyed writing the most? I think you and I were talking a little bit on Instagram after I'd posted about your book and you said Duke was your favorite character to write. Uh, Duke was one of my favorite characters to write. I mean, I found him so interesting because at the beginning it was very much, you know, Thelma was a wronged woman and that's just the end of it. But as I got to read Duke more, as I got to know Duke more, he became so much more complex to me. He was a man who, you know, he was of his time and he thought that this was just how his life was going to turn out. And that loving Thelma didn't mean that he couldn't have you know, some fun on the side, but he'd right. go back to her. Right. I think she changed the rules of the game for him and he wasn't expecting that. And yeah, he, he was very interesting to me. The other character who I just loved writing was Avril. Thelma's stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she just is such, she was such a force uh, of a character and she just breezed in and kind of wrote herself almost. I really liked her and it made me sad that she did not have a long life when I was reading that at the end. But yes, no, I thought she was definitely a force of nature and it just ended up not going very well for her all the way around and it just made me sad. But I, I started out not really liking Thelma because I thought the same thing, you know, she was kind of out there behaving badly, I guess, is a not great way to say it, but I mean behaving badly. And by the time I was done, I really sympathized with Thelma and I liked Duke less because I just felt like he didn't handle any of that well as the book went on. I mean, I felt sorry for him, but I also felt like he didn't handle a lot of things very well. So it's interesting. Oh, he brought it on himself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think at the beginning thought maybe it was going to be advantageous for him, but then as it went on, he was not happy with that. And Mm -hmm. it's hard. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Did you come up with the title for this one or did the publisher, how did your title come about? So when I started writing this book, the working title for it was The Woman Before Wallace. And then when I started kind of sending it out and seeing whether there was any interest in it, I changed the title to People Like Us, which refers to, there's a a later scene in the book where Edward tells, uh, actually, no, I believe it's, um, 
Uh, it's one of the other characters tells Thelma, people like us can kind of get away with anything we want. And I did that because I felt like putting Wallace in the title might not give Thelma enough, enough agency. But then I circled back to the woman before Wallace because this is a book about women who really get tarred by brushes that aren't of their own choosing. You know, Gloria Vanderbilt is seen as an unfit mother. Wallace Simpson is seen as this seductress who stole the king off of his throne. And Thelma ultimately is seen as the woman before Wallace. It's about women who aren't able to define themselves the way that they would choose to. So in that light, the title became very fitting for me. You know, I think it's the perfect title. And I'm a huge cover person. I am all about good covers and I think it can make or break a book. And your cover is beautiful. And one of the things people kept saying when I posted was that cover. (laughs) So, um, but I mean, it's just amazing. So uh, tell me about that. So I am amazed with what Mira did with my cover. When they sent it to me, I was sitting in a coffee shop and I get this email from my editor saying, this is the direction that we're going in. It's by no means final. If you don't like it, we can go down a different path, but we all really like it. But (laughs) no, if you don't like it, we'll go somewhere else. So I opened the email and this was the cover that they sent to me on first glance. And I just, I, I literally burst into tears. I was like, it's exactly, exactly what I want. Like you went into my head and pulled out exactly what I would have wanted for myself. Like it's even my shade of green. And they didn't know that. So, <laughs> yeah, you're like, how did they read into that? Well, I, I think like, it's absolutely you, stunning. How did you my eyes? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, they, well, that's they great. They it out of the park. That's very nice that to start from the beginning and that you weren't crying tears of sadness, but instead tears of joy, <laughs> which is great. I think it's very eye-catching. And I think the second somebody sees it, they're going to pick it up to read about it. It's just a stunning cover. Oh, it's so evocative. It definitely yeah. is. Are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? I am. I'm writing a second book for Mira. Um, and it is about the fall of the Romanov dynasty, told from the perspective of the eldest daughter, Olga. Oh, oh, that'll be interesting. I love that time period and that whole family. So that'll be fascinating. Oh, it's it's a great time period to write about. It's definitely it's definitely a change, even though it's it's not that much earlier in history. It's a totally different time period to research, different culture. And I'm I'm really having a blast doing it. Oh, good. That's exciting. What do you like to do when you are not writing or reading? Seems like these days that's all I'm doing, <laughs> particularly with the pandemic. But when I'm not reading and writing, I like to be up at my family cottage in the Great Lakes. I'm a big swimmer. So anytime I'm in or around water, I'm happiest. I also love cooking. My sister's actually a chef. So we're, oh, we're quite competitive nice. in our family in terms of <laughs> cooking good dinners, which is, which is a lot of fun. So. Oh, that's great. I'm a terrible cook. I wish I had a sister that was a chef. (laughs) Oh my God. I I learned so much from her. It's great. My brother's a great cook too. So between the three of us, um, we we always can scrounge up something delicious. (laughs) I'm very jealous. Well, I cannot thank you enough for joining me. I loved this book. I love hearing all of this stuff. Before we wrap up, I would love for you to tell me about a couple of books you recommend, things you've read lately that you really like. Yeah, absolutely. I just finished David Mitchell's latest book, Utopia Avenue, and I adored it. If you like Daisy Jones and the Six, it's very, I I thought it was very much evocative of that same time period and just couldn't put it down. The Henna Artist by Alka Joshi is another one that I just adored. What she did with that book is unbelievable. And then finally, The Library of Legends by Jeannie Chang. Loved The Library of Legends. Those, those Those are the three books that have really stuck with me over the past couple of months. 
The cover for David Mitchell's book is very eye-catching. Every time I see it, I'm immediately drawn to it. But I didn't realize that it was similar. I mean, not similar to Daisy Jones, but kind of like that, because that was one of my favorite books from the year that it came out. So I'll have to go pick that one up. Yeah, it's different. Totally different writing, totally different story, but um, it's evocative of that same time period. And there's something about that time period that just feels so wonderful and sun-drenched and lovely. No, I agree completely. Well, thank you again for your time and for joining me. And I just uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. Bryn's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.